everybody, and welcome to Shift F1, a podcast about speedy race cars. I am Drew Scanlon. Joining me, Danny O'Dwyer. How are you, Danny? I'm doing great, Drew. I have already watched all of Drive to Survive Season 2 and looking forward to Season (laughs) 3. Nice. Coming up soon. Uh, Rob Zachney is also with us. How are you, Rob? Not bad. I'm savoring Drive to Survive. But uh, that Haas episode, huh? Oh, boy. Man, I know. Oh, Let's not. <laughs> Don't burn pod. It's it it's 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 great. It's brilliant. It's better than last year's. The whole thing. It's wonderful. What a great time. World. What a wonderful time to be alive or dying in Drew's case. Uh, yes, as you may be able to tell, I uh, have a cold and am super uh, sick and gross. So uh, I'm probably not going to talk very much this episode. So uh, <laughs> why don't you why don't you take it away, Danny? Yeah, uh, Drew's handed the baton to me this week uh, because he's not feeling great. I will say that I was uh, I was feeling all right this morning, but since I've been editing in the studio for a couple of hours, and uh, I got a, I never get headaches, and I just got a headache, and now I've been coughing a bit. So uh, perhaps by the end of the podcast, I will be handing the baton to Rob, and it will be a solo effort. Um, uh, listen to the rest of the podcast uh, to find out. Um, but yeah, this is uh, effectively the first episode of the 2020 season for us here at shift f1 uh, our preseason primer was up obviously we've done a bunch for patrons uh, but this is where uh, if you'll excuse the pun the rubber hits the road for formula one uh, testing is uh, over now we've had um, um was it six days in total i think of uh of testing at circuit uh, de Barcelona and catalonia spain where we we will be returning midway through the season uh, if the coronavirus doesn't um, mess with that we'll talk about that later um but uh yeah we're, we're basically here to today to talk about sort of the, the the top points from testing over that two-week period uh, how the teams fared where they sort of look like they're shaking out and we're also going to cover up a bunch of the news that has happened um since uh since te- like sort of around the testing window um, either in relation to testing itself or some other stuff um, to, to keep your eye on as we enter the 2020 season and look forward to Melbourne. Uh, but to get the show on the road, Rob, do you mind giving us a little bit of a, a sort of a, an over-under on what exactly testing is for, for the uninitiated? Yeah, so uh, testing, I don't know how it was uh, sort of before I started watching. I don't remember the early days of my fandom. I don't remember the preseason test being quite as big a deal, but I think it's become a much larger deal as like more and more restrictions have kept coming in on testing. Basically, testing is... F1 has famously failed at cost containment measures pretty much across the board, and for their sins, uh, F1 testing <laughs> pays the price. Uh, so... F1 has a really restrictive uh, testing regime uh, in the past, and this is some info that uh, Drew Drew put together uh, for this episode. But Drew is, uh, you know, obviously is obviously wounded. Uh, <laughs> but you know, we used to have eight testing days. Uh, this season, we are down to six. Um, this is not without controversy. Uh, I think it was mm. Claire Williams, like during this, uh, <laughs> during this, during the test sessions, was saying that this is not enough time to sufficiently test these cars. Which is a bit rich because last year they only did six. <laughs> yeah, how many how many days did the Williams actually run too? They yeah, got like they, 50 missed, laps. they missed two of them. Yeah, yeah so like, it would have been six of the eight they actually only turned up for. Um, I think the, but I think that kind of points to it as well is some of these teams 
can do a lot without ever hitting a track. Other teams, a lot of you struggling outfits, when you are trying to pin down reliability, when you've got a lot of performance issues to, to troubleshoot, you desperately need testing time. And I think the restrictions on testing have been one way that F1's uh, kind of hierarchy of the power rankings have kind of been baked in. Uh, but as a result, it puts a lot of pressure on these six test days to get a lot of data out of the car. Uh, every single lap, teams are looking for looking at some aspect of performance. Drivers are going out there. They are trying to do fast laps sometimes. Uh, other times, they are just basically pushing the car to its limits and just to see where is it unreliable. Uh, where do they start to have problems uh, crop up? How does the car wear as it spends time on the track? Uh, sometimes you will see during testing... These cars will be carrying, uh, it looks like a chain link fence or like an old <laughs> radar array almost, um, and that is to measure airflow. Uh, you will also sometimes see the cars covered in um, like a, almost like a streaky neon highlighter. Uh, effect yeah. as, as they drive like around. Paint or something, right? Yeah, and that is, uh, that's Flovis, and again, that's a, that is a way to get that, that is a way to basically have the aerodynamic behavior of the car literally painted onto the surfaces. Uh, so the flow is, is sort of dragged and streaked uh, around as air passes over the car. And based on those patterns, engineers can discern a lot uh, from a lot about how the car performed aerodynamically that you really just can't get in a wind tunnel. A wind tunnel test tests, uh, you know, largely air moving in a straight line over the car, but out on the track, you obviously have cross breezes, you have cars turning. Uh, so it's really important to see that sort of data as well. Um, teams run one driver at a time. Uh, the other is watching and listening to the radio. Uh, you also have, Testing is also an opportunity for teams to te like basically do uh, dress rehearsal pit stops, mm. uh, which the mechanics are always sort of doing uh, pit stop training. Uh, you know, back at back at HQ, but uh, testing allows for uh, more serious uh, rehearsals of that stuff. Uh, and then you, sometimes you will have teams intentionally uh, short the fuel in the car and that is to see how like that's that's basically to see like how far can this car get on a zero fuel situation because remember these are teams that do basically want to finish a race with a with a splash of fuel left in the tank <laughs> and anything more than that is just extra weight that they want to get rid of yeah, for sure. Uh, it's a big part of, um, I guess, the, the 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 whole idea of testing being that it's not really about heats. It's more that you're trying to test out the best and worst of the car and get as much data as, as possible. But um, that doesn't mean that we're not also looking at the, the, the hottest times and, and taking a look at um, those times that the teams have gone out and really tried to set hot laps on, on some of the softer tires. Um, there's a lot of variability in this, obviously, um, in terms of uh, what the pace is like, different tires, uh, the amount of fuel that's in the car at any one second. Uh, I think Drew is I know here saying it's uh, about a 0 
five seconds per 10 kilograms. Um, Barcelona is often cold this time of the year. This actually was an unseasonably warm um, week for pre-season testing, for winter testing. Um, it was also a bit windy as well uh, for the last couple of days, especially the last day, which uh, um, was probably just as well that they had done quite a lot of their aero work um, earlier in the in the, in the allotment. Um, so looking at these times, you can't really tell altogether uh, where everyone is, but it's it's painting a sort of a broad picture. And looking at the the, the top ten here, it kind of feels um, um, in line with, uh, with with some of the stuff we've been hearing about. Actually, I'm not sure. Is Williams? Oh, no, Williams are there. Okay, well, maybe it's not particularly in line then um, with the tops. But uh, we're going from... I'm going to basically go down a list here of uh, the fastest laps uh, we saw from each team um, in the order in which they were fastest in relation to the other teams. Of course, Mercedes, uh, fastest of the bunch on the C5 tire on the third day of testing. Valtteri Bodas sitting in the seat. Uh, got a 115.732. Um, Max Verstappen next. The Red. Bull, we'll get into the teams in a, in a hot minute as well, but uh, the Red Bull looking pretty mighty fast. Uh, on the final day, Max, I think it was maybe his like uh, fourth last lap of the entire um, six-day test, but uh, he managed to pull off a 116.2 uh, on the C4, uh, which is impressive in its own right. Uh, the, they did a lot of running on the C4 and C2 in the final couple of days. Uh, Danny Ricardo uh, posted his fastest time ever in preseason testing on the C5, a 116.27, uh, just two tenths slower uh, than the Red Bull. Uh, Ferrari were next with Charles Leclerc, uh, or Charles Leclerc, as he called himself once again in Drive to Survive. <laughs> <laughs> Complicating things further. Uh, on the final day again, on the C5, a 116.3, 6. Uh, Sergio Perez in the very fast uh, pink Mercedes, uh, the racing point on day 6. Uh, in the C3, posted a 116.6, 6, I guess. That we'll one call that. caught my attention. Uh, yeah. That is an extremely good time on the C3. Now, obviously, we probably have to make allowances for the fact that some of the guys in front of him are sandbagging. Um, it's We'll get into this with like Ferrari. Like, are Ferrari as slow as they seem? Uh, is Mercedes holding back on pace? Nevertheless, like uh, Perez doing that on the, uh, you know, C3, on, on, on the C3 compound, uh, given that harder tires you're basically surrendering a what is it like about a roughly like a little over a second a lap mm. thereabouts uh for him to turn in that kind of time uh does suggest that the racing point may have some actual pace in it yeah mighty uh really that was one of the there's a number of things we'll get into the teams that really sort of piqued people's interest and that's Certainly one of them. Um, Carlos Sainz in the McLaren, uh, day six on C4. Again, 116.8. Uh, Georgie Russell managed to get his uh, Williams around in 116.8 as well, 0.87 um, on day six uh, using the C5. Uh, then we had Alpha Torres, uh, Daniel Kvyat on the final day on the C4, posting a 116.9. Um, Robert Kubica in the Alfa Romeo, of course, him being the uh, tester uh, for uh, Alpha this year, Alpha Romeo. I guess I have to actually delineate which yeah. Alpha now. Um, uh, on the fourth day, uh, running the C5, he got a one sixteen point nine, and then way off the pace. Um, sorry, nine four, uh, and then way off the pace uh, was the Haas of Roman Grosjean. Uh, Haas probably had the most difficult of the uh, teams in preseason testing uh, in terms of speed and in terms of laps. Actually, uh, on day six on the C4, he got a one seventeen. 
uh, 0.037. Um, reliability, as as probably we shouldn't be very surprised, has been pretty good. We're kind of at the end of the life of these cars. Uh, new regulations coming in 2021. Um, as we talked about in the preseason primer, the teams have really dialed in not just the speed of these cars and managed to get them back to where they were before the the, the sort of the latest change, um, but also the reliability is far, far better, which is great news for um, every team not the least uh, folks like Williams, who really struggled. Uh, Mercedes, of course, as to be expected, managed to eke out the most laps at 903, followed by Ferrari at 844, McLaren at 804, Racing Point 782, Red Bull just shy of them with 780, Alpha Tori 770, Renault 743, Williams 737, Alpha Romeo 735, and then Haas with 649. But, you know, all things being equal, that's that's not a bad showing either. Um but uh, it's probably about time we dove into some of the specifics because it's been a very interesting preseason test. Uh, maybe, maybe the least surprising who's on top, um, which Drew will talk about. But uh, it was fun to see—I don't know, like a like an airplane control being used yeah. in an F1 car. I guess sort of fitting in a way. Yeah, so uh, I think this is also the first year that they have televised every testing session. And this is something that um, we may not have seen uh, before the Australian Grand Prix, if not right. for that occurrence, right? So Mercedes has this weird thing called dual-axis steering, where they can actually, the drivers can push and pull their steering wheels in and out, in, uh, in addition to turning them left and right. And what that does is change the toe angle of the front of the car. So if you imagine like looking down at your toes as you're standing, usually they're parallel, right? Your feet are, uh, you know, pointed straight forward. But if you move both your toes away from your body, your feet are pointed out. If you move your toes in, they're, you know, uh, pigeon toed in a lot. Like if you ever, ever learned to ski mm. pizza, <laughs> French fries, right? Um, and so this has a, a few. Mercedes says the effect will be small. Um, of course, and, it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Of course, they're saying that, and also, uh, I guess we don't really know because mm. they haven't even had a chance to really try this on track very much. So um, that's what testing's all about. But uh, the the thinking goes that you want an outward toe in corners because the inside tire is turning a tighter corner than the outside tire. So if you're just locked on parallel tires uh, and you're turning, one of those is going to be uh, scuffing along the ground, right? Um, but if you if they're turned at different rates, you get a much better, uh, you know, even patch of grip uh, and not as much uh, scuffing. So, but you also want your tires to be parallel on the straights, you know, going straight forward. Um, unless, however, you want to heat or cool different parts of your tires. So if you change the toe... While you're going straight, you'll essentially be dragging the inside or the outside of the tire uh, along the ground, which will mm. heat it up, which is sometimes what you want, right? Like we see cars mo- you know, weaving back and forth under a safety car sometimes um, to, to get their tire temperature up. Uh, Chain Bear right. uh, also has a, a really good explanation video uh, for uh, DAS, which we will link in the show notes. Um, and of course, as soon as I, I really enjoyed seeing... Uh, this sort of happened in real time because I didn't watch testing live, of course, but like there were uh, fun little clips floating around of like 
all of the Renault engineers crowded around, you know, the TV screen looking like, what is that? What are they doing? Mm. Like, cause like, this is the first time anyone has ever seen this. And it wasn't until, you know, the broadcast crew was like, let's take a look at this clip that we found of Lewis Hamilton pulling his wheel <laughs> in and out. Um, <clears throat> but everyone was, uh, you know, a little taken aback by like, is this going to be legal? Um, and, I'm not going to quote any uh, regulations here because um, I don't know them. But um, apparently it is uh, for the 2020 regulations. Right. Um, but it is not for the 2020 run regulations. And that's not it. it I think um, it seem, can seem like the FIA like instantly changed their rules for 2021 after this happened. But in fact, that rule was in there uh, before this came out. However, uh, Mercedes says that the DAS is not news to the FIA. It's something that they've been talking with them for some time about. Um, so I could see them, you know, talking with them like, Hey, do we just want to make sure this is, this rules in place and the FIA is saying like, okay, yes, but we're going to make it illegal for 2021. <laughs> uh, Ferrari also, like as soon as this came out, Ferrari said, uh, Oh yeah, we were, uh, we were thinking of doing that as well, but, uh, we decided <laughs> against it. Yeah. Which, we I don't know. If I believe. Um, so, one other thing I will say that I saw some speculation about was that while the FIA appears to have signed off on it, there is a po- there is room for a challenge. It kind of depends on whether or not teams really want to push this. Um, that it may still be challengeable under Park Ferme mm. because oh, the Park Ferme rules are uh, pretty specific about adjusting the suspension after the car enters park Ferme. Oh yeah. Right, but is the toe angle classified as suspension? I think that is the gray area. That is uh So the 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 thing is like in general, like for instance, okay, this is unscientific, but like you're playing a racing game, and usually the way it divides car setup is in different categories, right? You go into toe, uh-huh. like toe angle has always <laughs> been like in the suspension category. You set it along with uh, sway bars. Uh, if if your cars have those, you tend to like in general. Your Honor, like, if you look at Exhibit Three, Colin McRae rally. <laughs> yeah, but like <laughs> like in terms of like the toe angle, this seems like it's been pretty generally regarded as part of like setting up the suspension of the car. Um, so it's like gray enough that if anyone, if anyone, somebody could make that argument, I suspect somebody could, uh, the question is whether they will like, well, if the Mercedes are like five seconds faster than everyone in Melbourne, then (laughs) you know, they will. Yeah. Yeah. Other teams have estimated that if they wanted to try and replicate DAS, that it would take six months or so to do. So it would be, you know, not an, an easy thing to integrate into their cars. Um, the Mercedes team principal, Toto Wolf is big on not being complacent, uh, being humble, and not taking anything for granted. I think DAS is a reflection of this, mm. um, you know, continuing to innovate, uh, even though they have won the past six drivers and constructors championships in a row. Um, <clears throat> so I expect Mercedes to be every bit as competitive this year. And uh, it would also, uh, that, that is supported by the fact that they do have the fastest lap time and the most laps. Overall, there were a few gremlins in testing, like electrical and oil pressures, oil pressure issues. Um, but Mercedes is generally very reliable, so I, I, I don't personally put a lot of stock um, or worry in that. Um, but yeah, that's that's Mercedes. Mm. 
So, uh, Ferrari. Yeah, I've heard of them. Uh, yeah. They they lost to Ford in Le Mans in 1966, I believe. I've, re- I've recently watched two movies about them and recorded two podcasts about it. <laughs> and that's how America gained its independence. Uh, <laughs> from, from the totalitarian Enzo Ferrari. Yeah, so Ferrari came into the season having had another really disappointing uh, campaign last year. Uh, Mm. Last year was obviously the year that it was really expected they were going to bring the fight to Mercedes because arguably back in 2018, they had a pretty reasonable chance at nabbing a championship. And last year, Ferrari looked really dominant in testing. Mm. And... There's a lot of questions as to like why that pace all went away. Like, was Mercedes sandbagging? Uh, was it also, as, as uh, you alluded to earlier, issues with the unique time of year and temperature profile of winter testing as opposed to where those early races were actually run? Uh, who knows? But Ferrari came into this, into this testing uh, season with the interesting goal of not chasing performance. And mm. Bonato's uh, public statements on this were very much like, you know, to the, to the tune of last year, we were really chasing performance pretty much throughout testing. And we ended up with a car that wasn't competitive. Uh, this time we're going to be evaluating for other things, consistency, etc. cetera. Uh, the other thing that Ferrari has emphasized with their 2020, uh, with their 2020 model is that it is an aero first design last year Mercedes uh, Ferrari basically staked everything on the power unit lifting them to victory and they never really did they, they never really did catch up to Mercedes performance in corners particularly slow corners and you know, you could see that playing out on the track where if the Ferrari was within striking distance in a straight line, uh, the Mercedes was at a disadvantage, but the Ferrari could rarely get into that sort of uh, attack range and stay there. So Ferrari really did uh, build a car for aerodynamic performance, and they were pretty upfront about having traded away some speed. And that appears to be reflected in the kinds of times they were posting uh, throughout uh, through, throughout testing this year. Uh, you know, if you if you look at what Vettel's uh, fast time was this year, he set uh, a one sixteen point eight on the uh, on the C five, the softest tire. Uh, but in that session, like immediately after he did that, he brought out a red flag because he went off the track. Mm. Um, so there are the Ferraris were not setting amazing times uh, throughout this throughout this uh, throughout the winter testing, and it looked like they had shed more than a little speed uh, trying to trying to improve the aero. And also the drivers, uh, well, Vettel at least, didn't sound too happy about the actual aero performance of the car. Um, he was he was complaining about understeer. Uh, apparently there were issues with the, car, with the car having drag. And everything about Ferrari, unless this is, again, some masterful, like, you know, bluff, <laughs> the thing that's worrying is when you come into the season saying, ah, this year we we really did put aero first and uh, we're, we're 
sort of correcting last year's mistake. But that shouldn't necessarily come with a major trade-off for speed. You know what I mean? Like, this is the thing, is teams can always trade off speed, like downforce and top speed. That's always a bargain you can make. The way you make actual gains is, you know, you get the you get the improved engine and you find a better aerodynamic solution. It sounds like what Ferrari have kind of ended up doing here is just adding more like aerodynamic grip to what they already had available uh, at the cost of maybe slowing down the car and maybe changing its handling profile in some ways that were not terribly productive. So it was a concerning, uh, it was, it was a concerning test, I would say for Ferrari. Um, And in terms of looking like they're going to be battling for a championship, they look pretty well, a rear of Mercedes and even Red Bull, uh, to, to be to be quite honest. Uh, and to add insult to injury, there was some talk, probably overhyped, uh, that they are starting to view Racing Point as a potential threat, uh, which is not where Ferrari want to be. Yeah, it's interesting. I think as we kind of make our way through these teams, we're going to get the, 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 the narrative of well, Mercedes notwithstanding, and perhaps Williams, there does seem to be a sort of a, a contraction of a lot of the mid-pack um, and also question marks over who's going to enter this sort of fight for second, third, fourth, uh, which could be quite dynamic this year. Uh, Red Bull, uh, looking at the moment like second place in terms of pace, in terms of consistency, um, they had a pretty great winter testing. They had a little bit of uh, difficulty on the penultimate day with their rear suspension. But uh, overall, the car performing well, spending a lot of time um, working on various tire compounds and trying to dial those in. Um, the one question mark over the Red Bull uh, seems to be its issue with handling at speed. We had both Verstappen and Albon losing the rear um, uh, at top speed, um, and it's 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 something that Verstappen sort of played down in interviews after the fact, but. Um, it's sort of a consistent issue that they seem to have, especially when they were posting fast times. It wasn't until the final day that Max really went for a couple of goes on the uh, the C4, I think it was, that he set the yeah the, the second fastest time at 116.269. Uh, they actually spent most of their time um, uh, driving around on the C2. So they did 583 of their 780 laps. Uh, on that C2. So, you know, it's you can read the tea leaves in lots of different ways with this stuff, but we could be looking at a car that's very much focusing on consistency over long um, stretches during the race, but perhaps an issue for qualification if their top speed is uh, is, is rubbing up against whatever problems they're having with, with the grip. Um, it seemed to be, you know, we, we see a lot from Red Bull in terms of they changing the car over the first couple of races so maybe we'll have a bit more um you know insight into if that is an issue for them in qualification or whether or not this sort of squirreliness that they're having is something that they'll they'll dial in uh once we're into the first couple of races but overall they seem pretty consistent um not up to pace with the mercedes but definitely you know beating uh, ferrari looking like they have some space between them and mclaren um and maybe some of the other uh uh, uh, cars we mentioned before we'll get into in, in a second um, but uh, yeah um, it looked pretty much they seem 
pretty satisfied with, with how uh, testing went. Um, I have the next team as well, which is McLaren, who also had a fantastic test uh, this year as well. Chasing down fourth place again, uh, but now sort of maybe looking uh, at the top three as well. There was an element of, you know, we, we talked last year a lot, I remember, about the sandbagging issue, whether Mercedes were sandbagging. You know, Rob bringing up the very good question of whether this year we're seeing Ferrari not focusing on top pace and maybe they'll surprise us when they hit Melbourne. Um, you could say the same thing about McLaren. They they seemed very happy on lots of tires. They put in loads of laps, but you also got the feeling that perhaps um, they were not showing off their, their top speed. They did lots and lots of laps on the hard tires, similar to Red Bull, um, d- dialing in that sort of like long distance element which is just you know part and parcel for for uh, winter testing i guess um plenty of laps and then good times on the last day as well uh the question for them i guess is who they're fighting with next year which i think is the 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 thing that a lot of these mid teams are sort of trying to figure out where they land there's big question marks over uh, racing point of course there's also question marks over AlphaTauri, uh, which Rob's going to talk about in a second. Uh, and then perhaps the biggest question mark at the moment is is kind of Renault. Like, are they in the gap? Are they in that fight at the top? Um, or are they slipping down a little bit more? Uh, Danny obviously did his fastest lap ever in preseason testing, but uh, I'm interested to hear more, Drew. Where, where do you think Renault are? Yeah, it, it seems like uh, Renault's a team that no one really knows how to nail down in terms of testing. Some people put it, uh, you know, pretty high in the mid pack. Some people put it pretty low. Um, but I think the kind of the, the biggest thing that stood out to me is something that, uh, Will Buxton pointed out in his, um, uh, his, um, Oh, what paddock pass, I think he calls mm. it where he basically just walks around and does a, a breakdown of this, the session. Um, after every, uh, he does it for testing. He does it for, like before each race weekend, uh, I think we we also uh, neglected to mention in our preseason primer that F1's YouTube channel uh, does a really good job, um, you know, showing some of the stuff that's outside of the regular racing broadcast. Yeah. Um, but the the Renault car is apparently the product of an old design team that is no longer mm. with Renault. The whole uh, team. I guess <laughs> yeah. because they they've brought in a guy named Pat Fry, uh, who helped turn around McLaren. Um, and so he is now working uh, uh, at Renault, um, although, yeah, unsure how much he actually had to do with this car. Um, there were some issues during testing for Renault. Ricardo broke down on day three. Um, <clears throat> reliability has never really been Renault's strong suit. Uh, they also did the fourth fewest laps, uh, right. although, as they did point out, um, they only used uh, one engine. Um, and McLaren, which also uses a Renault engine, also only used one engine. So uh, no no engine replacements had to be done. Um, another thing Buxton said was uh, the, the best indicator usually in testing is body language because, you know, you can look at the times, that's not really representative, and you can listen to the words of a driver or a team, and that's not really representative because everyone wants to be positive. Um, and Ricardo seemed a little reserved. Um, mm. I didn't I didn't see a lot from Esteban Ocon there uh their new driver there, although he did get a, a, a good chunk of track time, um, his his first in a in that Renault. Um, so yeah, there's still kind of a question mark. Ricardo said, "We know we've still got some work to do." Um, 
<clears throat> but generally, I think they, they kind of know where that work needs to happen. Also, I'm looking forward to seeing what their uh, what their car actually looks like because they are they're running a an all black testing livery for this. Uh, I imagine mm-hmm. it'll be the same black with yellow trim uh, come Melbourne. But uh, yeah, the next uh, team we've got here is Alpha Tori or Alpha Towery. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think they it is want that. you to say Alpha Towery, yeah. but I don't I don't know that we're going to be able to do that. Um, their drivers, uh, Daniel Kvyat and uh, Pierre Gasly, both kind of saying that the car feels good, um, but they're still dialing in that sweet spot. They feel like they've made progress from last year and that the Honda engine has seen a few improvements and those seem to be working as well. Um, I think generally it seems pretty solid. Gasly says we have a, a bit more coming. Um, and as Buxton pointed out, he backed off on uh, one of his fastest laps. So, yeah. Uh, I don't know if we defined sandbagging, but that's what that is. That is, uh, you know, hiding your your true pace to to confuse your enemies. Um, so I, you know, Red Bull looks good, and if that's coming from the Honda engine, then then it could turn out well for Alpha Tories uh, as well. So, um, <clears throat> who had a good testing uh, session this, this time around was uh, Racing Point, the former Force India team. Uh, we talked a little bit about this on the preseason primer, um, but Racing Point are really Lawrence Stroll's team at this point, uh, and they are headed for a marriage with Aston Martin and will probably be converted to something like a works team uh, you know, for, for next season. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also much more flush with cash than they were as part of the uh, business dealings around Lawrence Stroll and sort of clearing out the uh, wreckage of the end of the uh, VJ Maliev era. Um, this car, though, is interesting and a little bit controversial. When they showed up to uh, testing, they showed up with basically last year's Mercedes W10. They took the aerodynamic configuration of the Mercedes and effectively cloned it. Mm. Uh, And this is something you just don't see that often. Honestly, I'm a little bit... I find it odd that you don't see it more often uh, because it does seem like it would be an easy thing to uh, steal from year to year is just like consume the other person's advantage, uh, by taking as much as you can from their design, uh, as is viable. But of course, the reason a lot of teams couldn't do that one-to-one is because most teams are running different engines, different gearboxes, uh, and have different configurations. Racing Point runs a Mercedes engine. And so they were able to create a near replica of last year's championship winning uh, Mercedes. And technical director Andrew Green sort of defended the move and explained it this way. We had a car that was running around seventh in the championship, and we've got one more year of these regulations, and the development that we were seeing with the high-rate car just wasn't going to deliver, so it was worth taking a risk. Uh, That risk being taking uh, the sort of taking the design of the Mercedes. This is interesting because this was one of the major like controversies around Haas when they joined F1, that they had done something very similar. Uh, they effectively bought as many parts as they possibly could have off of Ferrari and built what looked to a lot of people like a sort of alternate Ferrari team. Um, 
And this is done for a couple reasons. Like, this is considered controversial for a couple reasons. One is F1, even though this has clearly not been viable for quite some time, F1 is still an engineering competition. There is, I think, still a little bit of presumption of... uh, Presumption that everyone should be at least trying to win the engineering battle as much as they're trying to win the racing battle on the track. And uh, there are regulations around F1 as to what parts of the car... uh, you're allowed to sell to other teams what you're allowed to buy uh, versus what has to be bespoke. Uh, nevertheless, it uh, there there were limits to this, as uh, one of their one, one of their engineers explained. Uh, anything to do with the chassis is kept in house uh, because that is something they can't really buy off of Mercedes. It doesn't really make sense to. Uh, so suspension systems, uh, chassis, wishbones, that's all, uh, the, the chassis through all through and through is a racing point, uh, component. The mechanical stuff is, uh, kind of what they're, what they're building around, but the, the, the air, uh, is, is Mercedes. Um, and, and to be clear, it is illegal in the rules for Mercedes to directly give their, data to racing point and share it like that um so at least the way i heard it explained was racing point basically just took a lot of photos of uh mercedes's 2019 car and mm-hmm. basically recreated it you know in autocad or whatever they use <laughs> yeah um so this has rubbed some of the teams uh the wrong way but I think it's probably this is probably the direction we're seeing f1 going uh christian horner basically you know, threw his hands up and said he didn't have a problem with it because uh, obviously <laughs> the the backmarker teams are not going to be viable uh, unless they start getting to shortcut to more viable designs. Uh, it's not fun for F1 when somebody's basically driven themselves into an engineering cul-de-sac, uh, as we sort of saw happen with Williams. The result is a car that uh, Sergio Perez has said is probably the best car that he's driven uh, in his career. And they posted generally respectable times. Um, we talked about it a little bit you know, toward the beginning of the show, uh, Perez setting that uh, 116.6 on the C3s, that is kind of a shot across the bows. Um, probably some people in front of him were sandbagging, but, like, could they all have been sandbagging? That mm. him running on a tire that may have been about a second a lap slower, uh, and he was he was within a second of just about the fat, like the fastest time uh, we, we saw this uh this testing so that car looks pretty competitive um lance stroll did not do quite as well but like set some set some decent times but it does look like if ferrari hasn't kept some pace uh in their pocket Racing Point might actually be in a position to start battling for, you know, P5, P6 uh, during races. And that is very exciting for us and very scary if you are Ferrari. Uh, Speaking of scary situations, um, well, I find it exciting, but I I suppose if I were at Alfa Romeo, (laughs) it might be scary. The fastest time in an Alfa Romeo set during this testing yeah was set by robert kubica 
Mm. Yeah, it was. I mean, yeah. The watch continues, gentlemen. <laughs> uh, and I, I say that kind of in jest, but also... Uh, Gia- I don't know why Antonio Giovinazzi is in that seat. Yeah, that's yes. Yeah, I don't. I don't get it. Yes, uh, Giovinazzi. Like you can go through. We've been sort of. We've been a bit reductive. We've generally been using the uh, timesheets for all of testing. That sort of mm. just takes the best times from throughout the uh, throughout all of the testing sessions. But here is the problem: Giovinazzi never really had a like particularly impressive day uh you know you, you're you start looking you start looking through the times he's routinely down in the uh you know 18s for his fastest uh these are not the times that he's supposed to be setting um and kubica looked pretty competitive in that alfa romeo and I do kind of wonder, like, I don't know what the deal is contractually. I don't know what options are available right. to them. On on the record, what is said is Robert Kubica is at Alfa Romeo in large part to help them uh, improve specifically their simulation capacity. Because mm. uh, yeah, they, they basically don't have, didn't have much, right? Right. They, are, uh, they, they have a fair amount of new infrastructure, but the thing they are missing is an actual uh like engineering grade racing simulator like i I saw a headline that said it'll take them 18 months to build right yeah and i looked into this a little bit it kind of looks like so at the like at the (laughs) quickest and dirtiest version of f1 simulation you have like the place the uh the console game like the f1 2019 20 f1 2020 (laughs) uh not a bad model, but again, like it doesn't know very much specific about any of the cars, and it is using track layouts and try and like an approximate modeling of like the racing surface and such. Uh, but what that series hasn't done is do what they do in iRacing, which is kind of your next step up, uh, which is like laser scans of the racing surface, uh, like pretty much like one to one fidelity. Uh, between what the feel of the course is and how it's laid out and what you see in the simulation. Uh, famously, remember last year it was Kubica, I think, who kind of beached it in that uh, kink at Baku. Mm-hmm. And the explanation that sort of came out was that in the Sims that Williams was running, uh, the <laughs> kink was slightly like misaligned from reality, if if memory serves. Wow. And uh, so. So, like, he took an angle that worked in The Sims and didn't quite work. Uh, and in that part of the course, there was no margin for error. But what Alfa Romeo is needing is something that has that sort of hyper-fidelity uh, simulation of the tracks. And that's not too hard to, hard to get. But also live aerodynamic modeling of what their car design is. And mm. have that modeled in the racetrack. That's... That is kind of your gold standard, and that is what they're trying to build towards, because then the changes you are proposing in the car design can be modeled in that simulation, and you will be able to approximate how they will feel to the drivers uh, as compared to what you already know the car feels like. And it should all behave roughly correctly and that's what they really need to be bringing along and supposedly that's what kubitz is there to do is help them 
get this feel for the car. The problem is Antonio Giovinazzi does not appear to have any kind of feel for that car. And like if you were to look at last year even, like like look at the standings for last year, he came 17th, right? Largely because of what happened in Brazil. He got fifth place in a crazy situation where a bunch of backmarkers scooped up points and he managed to get past Grosjean. But he, like Grosjean and Magnussen had a bad year. Like Kimi yeah. got three times as many points as Giovinazzi. He consistently underperformed. Um, I like I, I, I know it was his like I guess first season. First season team. back, yeah. Right. So so you're like okay, but like he only got in the top ten three other times, and it was tenth, and I think he came ninth in Monza. So I I don't. Yeah, I I wonder if we'll see. Like, can Kubica? Is there anything stopping Kubica getting? in during certain races or anything stop it like i wonder if there's something contract wise that'll protect giovanazzi like i don't know i think in general these guys have clauses in their contract protecting them from shit like this but i'm not sure a dude in giovanazzi's position does right like you know this this stuff you're not protected from this if you're a red bull junior driver uh so i think I think he like my my feeling is that he may be vulnerable unless there's something else that he's bringing to the table. Uh, you know, maybe there's some sort of uh, you know pay situation behind him. Mm. But I don't call having Kubica's got him. Uh, Polish oil money. He's got Polish uh, energy drinks. That too. Yeah, it's been been a while. It's been a while since we've had a a good uh, energy drink scandal in F one. Uh, <laughs> why not? Why not do it around Kubica watch? But no, I think. It is, like, concerning to me that the best the Alfa Romeo looked was with, uh, you know, Kubica behind the wheel. Now, uh, you know, Kimi's an old pro. Uh, You expect him to do well, but even he didn't show that kind of pace exactly. So I am uh, very curious what that car looks like uh, coming out of this uh, and, and what sort of the season holds for them. Yeah, there was a good interview uh, on Will's um, uh, track walk thing where they interviewed one of the engineers, I think, wasn't it? Um, and they seemed very uh, pleased with how the car is doing. So they, they could be they could be a, a quick one. People are kind of uh, um, that we're not we're not seeing everything out of that car, but yeah, interesting situation with the drivers for sure. Uh, Drew, you're up next with Haas, right? Yeah, speaking of energy drinks. Um, so. <laughs> Gunther Steiner, team principal for Haas, said, uh, crucially, yes, uh, crucially, quote, we learned the direction we need to go. Speaking of uh, the the car from from last year, we are happy with what we have seen at the moment. And Magnussen echoed something similar. Um, It's a new car, it reacts differently, and there's something to learn there. But it's kind of a good sign that it's different. (laughs) It's not just the same. Yeah, right. Um, Grosjean also seemed pretty positive. Says they, uh, you know, they haven't dialed everything in yet, but they're well on their way. Can't complain. He says we know where the positives are on the car and where we can improve. Um, Although it it was worrying that they posted the slowest time and the fewest laps. Mm. Um, Grosjean and Magnussen both crashed. So this, uh, along with a gearbox issue that they had, contributed to the low lap numbers. Uh, they did have the highest top speed of anyone, uh, at least mm. in test one. Um, although yeah, I think we've seen uh, Williams uh, do the highest speed trap, um, you know, in years past as well. So that I'm not sure how much that means. Um, I, the uh, I guess optimistic part of me wants to uh, believe that they're just kind of taking their time here in the test. 
not pushing too hard, making sure they understand everything, because uh, that's where things went, really went bad for them last year. Um, although I, it, it, nothing is really telling me that they're going to make any leaps and bounds necessarily. So, yeah, I, I, this coincided well with the, the there's an episode of season two of Drive or Survive, which really goes through the whole Haas problem last year and. And in the way that they were sort of chasing pace last year, kind of like what we were saying earlier with Bonato and, and Ferrari, where they were they were chasing this one sp- the, the, like the pace so much that they sort of got tunnel vision, and then by the time the car needed to be sort of reconfigured for for racing and and for all these different tracks, they were kind of stuck, not knowing enough about the car, and then they end up spending basically half, if not all, of last season splitting the cars and kind of running testing on every practice session for the rest of the year uh, trying to figure out what it is um that's that's wrong with the car's performance so yeah maybe but maybe going broader this time will will uh will suit them and uh, the final team to talk about is williams of course uh first things first they turned up on time unlike last year um in fact they were the first cars out on the track and uh, once the the green flag was waved on day one uh, uh of testing uh, we saw nicholas latifi uh, turn up as well, which is great to see him doing some interviews. Uh, I did. He's a. I guess he is a, a francophone. He's a, a Quebecois Canadian, so speaks with a, an interesting uh, accent. It took me a second to figure out that he was that he was speaking a second language. Um, uh, he uh, had a uh, his car broke down on the first day. Um, they they had this issue with oil, which Mercedes did too. Um, but. Uh, People were sort of wondering if it was just an issue with the Mercedes power unit. Williams seemed to suffer a bit more than Mercedes did in that respect. Um, but they still ran consistent number of laps. They got 150 laps that day. Uh, they ran 100 laps uh, on five of the, at least 100, sorry, on five of the six days. So they got plenty of data, um, which is much better than last year. But generally, it looks like while the car might be a step forward, it might be a little bit too much for them to close the gap between uh, the underperforming Haas of last year and an Alfa Romeo, which looks like it might be more um, powerful than uh, than we sort of realize. Uh, the rest of the, the crowd is obviously um, sped up as well. So um, it's going to be tough for Williams, I think. You know, they've probably... The, the Paddy Lowe saga is behind them. Um, maybe the car is looking a little bit better. They're probably mostly just, you know, holding on for dear life until the 2021 regs come in. Um but uh, they might be doing better this year, but probably looking at last place again. There's also, it hit them the worst, but there does appear to be this across-the-board issue with the Mercedes engines this year. Uh, Hamilton had to abort a run uh, with an engine failure. Williams, I think, burned through two engines over the course of testing. Wow. And uh, they were quick failures. Um, and... They had they were shipping those things back to the Mercedes uh, engine facility for analysis, but it looks like there's something up with the uh, there might be something up with the Mercedes, and that jogs a memory actually uh, from uh, sort of the mid off season uh, thing that that we were doing, um, which is that Mercedes did try to do a lot with um basically remember last year they were struggling with with heat issues uh and they changed they tweaked the engine a fair bit to try and handle uh, some of those heat issues and make them less of uh less of a problem so the notoriously reliable mercedes engine 
may have quietly had a more profound revision uh, than we've seen it have in uh, in a little bit here. So I'm very curious to see what goes on with the Mercedes engines over, like you know, these first uh, eight races that they run, whatever races they turn out to be. And that's the teams. That's everyone. That's our our lemon dance, gentlemen. Predictions. What do we What do we think? Who are we all kind of? resigned to the fact that Mercedes will be leading the pack this year? I mean, I think that's a uh, a safe prediction to make at this point. What do we think for second? Rob, where are you, where are you thinking? He's thinking about it. He's tapping his camera. I am so close to saying Red Bull's going to do this. It feels like, that's where the momentum feels like, at least, but you can never really tell. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'd say I think it's, I think Red Bull easily gets second. Uh, I'm saying they like I can see a world where they where they pull out first. Ooh. Like having Ooh. just talked about like if that Mercedes engine optimism. if that Mercedes engine yeah has a weak spot, um, then and the factory team posted the most laps of anyone though. Yeah, but they still had the issue, right? Uh, yeah. I don't know. I'm like the the issue. The thing that kills you is you start yielding points up through uh, you start yielding up points through penalties. And I think the thing we did see last yeah. year yeah. is that the Mercedes doesn't have that sort of dominance where they can start wherever and just crush all the top teams. Like over the course of that season, uh, like in several places, that Red Bull became pretty competitive. Uh, so. I, I could I could see them I could see them being a real threat to Mercedes. I think unless Ferrari's holding something in their back pocket, they're gonna roll over Ferrari. Drew, what do you think? And and looking further down the field a little bit too as well, McLaren and Renault, where do you think that, that sort of two to six ends up being? I mean, I think yeah, Red Bull strong contender for second. I mean, first would be that'd be crazy. Uh Ferrari and Racing Point, I think, have like a dead heat for third, for me. Really? Okay. Yeah. Um, so okay. May, maybe Ferrari third, Racing Point fourth. Here's like, here's why here's why Ferrari wins that because they don't have to run a stroll. Ah, <laughs> very good point. Okay, so all right. Uh, then after that, I feel really good about McLaren. Yeah, me too. Um, me too. I, I, more question marks surrounding Renault, but they also you know have. Signs it's showing they're strong, and and Norris. I feel the two of them are just bubbling with optimism. I feel like whereas Ricardo, I feel like that could kill him. A second year, okay. McLaren. So the thing around Renault's been super interesting with uh, them and Ricardo too. This whole season, there's this weird like it feels uh, like staged drama in some ways. All the Renault leadership are like you know. I don't know if we're going to be able to keep Daniel. Uh, you know, we're just trying to make these little incremental improvements, but we know Daniel's got his heart set on like a championship. You know, Daniel's a world class talent. He may not want to wait around, uh, you know, for us to get our act together. And then you have Ricardo on the other side being like, you know, I would love to be in a you know more competitive car, but I do really like being part of Renault, and I, I really want to be part of this journey. And so I think the thing they are. I think these are two parties that are kind of stuck together, right? Like, I think this is one of those 
this is a couple that should not have gotten married. But <laughs> yeah, mortgages totally. are expensive, yeah. Yeah. and there's these kids now. Yeah, it feels that way. And so this little like public like dance they've been doing feels very much like a uh, an attempt to sort of both show how they understand what the other is giving up to be there and both like understand like both demonstrating that they think their dance part their 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 partner in this uh can do better and has it in them to do better and they respect them on that level because uh, i do think like overall i i think the prospects for a know are a little bit dim um god knows what happened next year but this year doesn't look good I think uh, bottom four for me goes um, Alpha Tori, Alpha Romeo, Haas, Williams. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that. I'm, not, I'm I, I feel like this Alpha Tori has something in it we haven't seen. Although I, I do have a big question mark over the ability of Antonio Giovinazzi to sort of make good on that. I think we could see. I think Kimi will be more competitive this year. Um, but uh, yeah, but I also find that hard to argue with. And, yeah. and Haas, I didn't see enough from Haas, and yeah, unfortunately, Williams, I think, are probably going to be stuck where they are. It if Haas has the same tire issues, then it doesn't matter. Like they're screwed. Um, hopefully, they've they've licked those, but I don't know. Mm. Time will tell. Um, let's jump into the news, gentlemen, uh, and the news of the day. Uh, unsurprisingly, in the sort of grander news cycle. Uh, and also in F1 is the uh, the effect of the uh, co- coronavirus, which is obviously, you know, it's, it's a changing story on a day-by-day basis. Um, when it comes to events, uh, certainly in, in our sort of industry, uh, the Game Developers Conference was just cancelled here in the Bay Area um, as a bunch of different um, uh, companies pulled out because of the, you know, sort of uh, travel uh, the collection of people that you get there and if you're looking at sports in which people are traveling to different countries from different countries um, you can't pick a worse uh, sport to suffer from this I think than uh, well motorsport in general but certainly F1 um, it's already had a massive trickle down effect in a bunch of other racing series and there are uh, concerns from lots of different um, parties involved so I'm just going to kind of rattle through a bunch of the uh, the coronavirus updates here that Drew has very uh, um, uh, greatly put together for us. Um, so MotoGP has already cancelled their Qatar and Thailand rounds. Uh, Super Formula has cancelled its season opener. Uh, of course, we have seen the cancellation of the Chinese Grand Prix here in Formula 1. Um, and the questions aren't just about the actual cancellation of specific races, but also in terms of the ability for personnel from different country countries to get to those races, especially on the tight timeframes uh, which are necessitated in a 21 now race calendar year. Uh, some quotes here pulled from an autosport article um, around uh, Ferrari's sort of uh, assurances over coronavirus. Um, Italian team personnel and drivers have had trouble getting to this weekend's Bahrain F2 test because of fear over the virus. Um, Benato says, so if there are any medical screenings, we need to know about them. And it's important really to make sure that before leaving uh, the picture, whatever is the scenario, uh, we know it's we know it uh, that it's known and clear. Uh, one issue for F1 could be that one or two teams cannot run in Australia because staff cannot get there, but all others are fine. And whether a race uh, should go ahead at that time, and um, that's gonna, uh, that's the thing I think that we're going to see the knock-on effect of, especially with Ferrari, of course, because Italy has such a 
um, uh, a serious um, outbreak at the moment. Uh, we'll get to the Ferrari stuff in a second. Um, I say, this is Bernardo again, I say it's not only two teams because we are supplying assistance to Haas and the Alpha uh, Sauber team um, as well. So what will the situation... So what will be the situation that it eventually four teams cannot run and if the race will take place or not, that is not my decision. Uh, there's a line here. Is this from Chase Carey, I think? Uh, yeah. We do, not, we do not plan to proceed with the... Sorry, we do not plan to proceed with the race, he said. We do plan. Call, we do plan, about, sorry. Yeah, Vietnam. Oh, in, in relation to Vietnam, sorry. He said on a call with a Wall Street analyst, all systems are go. Of course, Vietnam um, having a, a pretty serious outbreak as well, as is... Uh, like I said, it's a sort of evolving story, and who knows, in a day or two, it could be very different all over again. Uh, Ferrari are in their own little pickle uh, about this because of the outbreak in Italy at the moment. Um, they locked down the, f- the factory um, uh, due to the uh, uh, COVID-13, should be more specific, uh, coronavirus. Um, what was the, the note you had here, Drew, um, in relation oh. to the scrutiny? Yeah, so... Uh- the issue specifically is that yeah, when they when Italian uh, team members went to uh, Qatar, they subjected Italians to quarantine uh, specifically right. as coming from a country with an uncontained outbreak. Uh, and if that starts happening, then you know that creates you, you now have critical staff uh, basically quarantined somewhere else away from their homes, but also unavailable for any kind of work. Uh, they're taken off the board. And so Ferrari are not going to send like, you know, imagine, imagine like Mattia Venato, uh, just has to like chill in a motel in Australia, uh, for, for two weeks. Um, you know, while the F1 season is underway, uh, that's just, that's a, a non-starter. Um, but where I think this gets really complicated is, and, and, we're kind of living this dynamic really intensely here in the U.S. as well. Um, but this is happening in F1 and microcosms, you know, additionally. Everybody wants to do business as usual. Um, yeah. Nobody wants to actually take emergency measures and treat this like a major public health emergency. And... Uh, where we see like the real incentive for this with uh you know F1 if you were being pragmatic right like if you and I were just you know sort of sitting around being like okay for real can we have these races can we can we run in Vietnam like if we're running F1 should we even try at this point given the uncertainty i would bet you like it feels like that would be a sensible thing to be like, yeah, this, this seems like it's probably something we're going to have to make preparations to cancel. Uh, F1 really doesn't want to do this in part because uh, when they <laughs> when they had an investor call, Liberty Media had an investor call uh, earlier this week, their share price dipped from $47 uh, mm. to $37.50 Yikes. Uh, over the course of a week. A six-month low, and according to Dieter Rankin, that basically uh, undid a lot of their stock gains that Liberty's had for the past three years. So this is a company that's been like trying to claw its way toward uh, like healthy profitability, and canceling these races and not getting those uh, fees uh, from e- event holders 
could be really crushing uh, for the sport, and not just the not just like Liberty Media as a whole. Uh, Rankin breaks it down uh, this way: uh, if you take Williams, they make about sixty million dollars a year uh, from mm. Liberty. Uh, if you were to take five rounds off of the F1 calendar, uh, that means that $6 million basically goes up in smoke. Um, and that is if the broadcasters still pay the full value of their contract despite not running the full balance of races. Uh, if the TV contracts are prorated in that same way, uh, then you're looking at like a $12 million hit. Uh, to the budget, twenty percent of the uh, you know revenue of the Williams team for the year. Can can a team like Williams eat that? Can a team like Haas eat that? Um, so this is it's a scary situation from the public health standpoint, but also like a lot of the people whose job it would be to sort of assess this and judge uh, whether or not these events should move forward and what's worth planning for. Uh, a lot of folks really do not want to contemplate the realities of what like truncating that schedule would require. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this all sort of um, plays out uh, in terms of the races because uh, some of them may be more dangerous ones. Like you talk, Japan, for instance, seems like that's probably one of the more dangerous um, uh, places to be flying a bunch of people into. They've already had, I think it's a two-week um, ban on a bunch of the, sc- the schools are out for two weeks there um, but of course that race isn't until quite late in the season it's the, the second week of October so no one's going to be pulling the plug on that one quite yet um, uh, and then of course you know China was so early in the calendar so is Vietnam it was me- meant it was the, the week prior to that 5th of April it's so soon like the Vietnam one especially feels very tough because the probable I imagine as well that the Hanoi-based, you know, investors and everyone who's setting that one up are probably been really banking on a payday in 2020 um, with the building of that uh, yep. circuit and or the, or the, that event rather. So it does make you worried. Uh, looking at the rest of them, it really depends on what happens in Europe, where we're having obviously it's it's kind of there's cases basically everywhere now. They're in Ireland, Northern Ireland, uh, the the Iberian Islands, Spain, France, Italy is obviously. I feel like Italy is probably, again, it's kind of, I don't want to say lucky, it's blessed in a way that it is later in the season, second half of the season, after the summer break, when we're going to Monza. But, like, surely, at at what stage, you know, the reason GDC, for instance, again, this game developer conference that we sort of, we we operate in, because we also work in games, the reason that one was cancelled wasn't because GDC pulled the plug. It was because so many companies stopped sort of sending their people to it. So do we see a situation where there's an outbreak in a country and it's particularly fraught and, you know, engineers don't want to go or drivers don't want to go or, you know, it, it it's sort of out of the FIA hands in a way where some of the, the teams are like, you know what, that's probably a little bit too close for, for our comfort. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it could get really weird here <laughs> for uh, the next few months. Uh, although... You know, it could lead to uh, my own personal Cinderella story where I go to a Grand Prix and none of the Ferrari guys can show up. And so they have walk on trials to be part of the pit crew. And then uh, I become the hero. You look like Nico Hulkenberg a bit. Or there Kevin Magnuson. Actually. Why yeah, stop it being the yeah. pit crew? 
Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like, why yeah. not just fully go like angels in the outfield? Yeah, Airbud. Uh, yeah. Go. Uh, some other, um, not other, but some different good news here. Good news, uh, especially for ES- you, Yes, ESPN confirmed to be commercial free this year and for the next three years. Uh, is that thanks uh, to our friends at Mothers? It is. Oh. Thank you, Mothers Polish. Oh, uh, for being them, so man. awesome. Yeah, just <laughs> I put it on my skin. It's how I get this this glow. Uh, this, sick. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> this comes from uh, uh, Motorsports reporter Adam Stern on Twitter, uh, claiming ESPN has signed Mothers Polish to a three-year renewal of the company's sponsorship of commercial-free F1 action. Um, this is the only way I can watch racing. So, uh, yeah, kudos to them for, for doing that. Fantastic. Uh, Rob, you want to talk about how uh, F1 is saving the planet? Yeah, um, they're they're on the case. Uh, I mean, <laughs> they might cancel a bunch of races, which would probably be the most positive thing that F1 uh, could do for the environment. Stop uh, adding calendars, races to the calendar. Yeah. Uh, but they are trying to work on the carbon neutrality of the sport. Uh, and one of the targets that Ross Braun has laid out is the motorhomes. Mm. Uh, if you are f- like at F1 events, you will see these huge uh, trailers pulling up. And a lot of them will sort of be Boltron together to form these kind of like trailer office buildings or trailer apartments uh, for for the F1 teams. And then for things like um, like Monaco, for instance, sometimes they bring out like special trailers uh, that Ross Braun describes as like the Gin Palace uh, trailers, which are the ridiculously like, hospitality, uh, you know, trailers that are really just kind of these, they sort of unfold into... Like, Transformers. Yeah, yeah, they, they, and they're really, they're really kind of incredible. Uh, they're they're really impressive uh, pieces of kit, and I've always uh, like I, I kind of am fascinated by them. But nevertheless, uh, that is hauling around a lot of weight and putting a lot of mileage uh, out there, uh, mostly for the purposes of creature of creature comforts and like hospitality suites. Uh, and one of the things that Ross Brown points out is this is mostly an issue for the European racing. They don't bring the trailers to the flyaway events because obviously you can't drive them there and it doesn't make sense. So when the teams are at flyaway races, they tend to just use whatever facilities are on hand and they can still put out a pretty good spread, right? They can still like host guests well. They can still be pretty comfortable. Uh, is Braun's, it China that had those little pots? Yeah. yeah. Oh, those look cool as hell. Yeah, they look rad. Man, I miss the China, the Chinese Grand yeah. Prix. Damn. Um, but anyway, so Braun's position is we could do that at every race. Uh, a lot of motorsports uh, facilities have decent facilities or something nearby that the teams could probably use in a pinch. They should maybe do that. Uh, but also, there's just some breathtaking reinventing the wheel, or I guess in this case the steam engine uh, type of quotes <laughs> from this interview with Ross Braun. Uh, as he's working out the problem of how do we, what do we do about the 256,551 tons of carbon 
uh, that F1 contributes to the atmosphere each year. What can we do to, to lower the footprint of the sport? Braun. So my guys at the moment are looking at all the alternative forms of transport, and train is actually a very efficient way of moving stuff around. <laughs> sea freight is also a very efficient oh way of moving things around in terms of the impact it has. So we're looking at all the logistics to see how we can minimize our impact. Uh, Let's just race trains. I'm, I'd be there for that. But it's it's more just, you know, this is particularly frustrating for someone who, uh, you know, the U.S. used to have a really good rail network like 50 years ago and largely demolished it and sold it off yeah. to, uh, to freight haulers. And it is not usable for a lot of small business logistics, uh, which is the kind of use case that you're actually talking about with F1. Even, even though it's not a small business, these are like... Mm you're not regularly shipping stuff via rail and F1. These are sort of special uh, cargoes that you'd be booking. Um, nevertheless, though, it feels like this is probably something that should have been on the on the radar for a while. So it feels like something that could have been possible uh, before now. Sea freight, I do understand as being tough because it's slow. Um, and so, like, what, are you just going to have F1 cars floating around the Pacific uh, for, you know, for, for months on end? I don't know. Uh, but it, it's something they're looking at. But there was another point they had that was interesting to me, which was, you know, the F1 calendar doesn't really make any sense. Um, they don't take the yeah, shortest distance totally. between points. They're constantly zigzagging. They go to Canada as Canada. part of Canada's the European. the worst one. Yeah, yeah. it's completely nonsensical that Canada is considered part of like the European leg of the and tour. And they go from Brazil to Abu Dhabi. Yeah. It, it, none of it makes any sense. But even, I guess, even if you just uh, like rationalize the European calendar, um, what they could end up doing is they could end up saving like uh, 3,400 kilometers of mm. of distance traveled during the European leg, uh, which comes out to like 1.125 million kilometers of uh, of diesel mileage. So, you know, those are those are options on the table, and those are probably things like that F1 should consider doing. They are, those are literally like the least you can do uh, to start out because you're not actually giving giving anything up. You're just changing calendar dates. Um, I also just want to toss out uh, Dieter Rankin wrote an interesting post over at race fans about the fact that Hamilton gets a lot of attention for being vegan and for kind of being outspoken on environmental issues. But like George Russell said similar things. And in general, like younger people are more concerned about climate change and F1 drivers mm -hmm. are not really exceptions to this. Um, you know, yes, you do have uh, Max, who's sort of out there being like, I love red meat. But by and large, I think a lot of the younger drivers do sort of uh, share these concerns. But Lewis, uh, you know, one of his big issues is plastic waste and plastic pollution. He sort of famously insists on uh, banning plastics insofar as it's possible from the Ferrari pit. And... This year, Mercedes also signed a five-year uh, deal uh, with the chemical company Ineos, uh, which you'll see their logo on the red 
end plates on the uh, on the Mercedes uh, wings this year. And Ineos is not a petroleum company, but they are a company that largely bought up the chemical manufacturer assets of petroleum companies and became a petrochemical uh, production giant. And uh, per Rankin, uh, plastics of the variety produced by Ineos at the rate of 300 billion pellets per week at one plant alone are said mm-hmm. to be a major contributor to ocean microplastic pollution. Uh, and that's going to be a tension in F1 that they're going to have to navigate. Not just that the sport has this like massive environmental cost, but also... Ineos buys a sponsorship to Mercedes in part so that they can get a nice shout-out from the drivers and such. Is Lewis Hamilton actually going to be out there saying, like, man, couldn't have done it without Ineos? Uh, Or is he going to keep them at arm's length? At which point you have kind of, again, a weird dissonance where you have drivers increasingly conflicted, not just about the sport, but maybe also some of their sponsors. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is going to be... That's going to be tricky. Like, motorsports always seems to have dubious sponsors. Uh, you know, when, when I was growing up, it was cigarette companies. And that was sort of their... They've been driven out, out of pretty much all other advertising, but they still I mean, it's still cigarette companies, right? They're just hiding in plain sight. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's Mission Winnow. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it's been uh, gas companies uh, for, mm. for ages. But those are starting to fall into a similar sort of toxic reputation and once those advertisers begin to dry up like what's the next what's the next avenue for advertising revenue uh in f1 i don't know uh last piece of news i think big news anyway uh do we want to just yeah i guess talk about it as much as we we can would be the uh the ferrari engine settlement stuff which I feel like I'm more confused about this than I was before the news even came out. Um, so the FAA and Ferrari reached a settlement. Uh, Rob, I have you down for this. Are you okay taking this one? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, but it's a confusing story because this is all kind of under wraps. So you remember last year, uh, there was the there was that point where Ferrari suddenly gained a lot of pace. Mm. And people intimated that there may have been something uh, not quite not not kosher. Yeah, not quite kosher about what Ferrari were doing, and nothing ever came of it. But also, supposedly Ferrari then made some modifications. Not that there's anything wrong with the engine, but Ferrari may have made some modifications, and their pace went away. Uh, and there was a lot of, I, I feel like Vettel did some shit talking about Leclerc, uh, cause everything is about those two, uh, when, when they get into it. Uh, but there was a little bit of shade being thrown from other teams that, uh, when Ferrari picked up its pace, there was something, uh, not on the up and up. And so what has come of this is there was a settlement reached between the FIA and Ferrari over that 2019 Ferrari engine uh, following an investigation. And all that's been said is that there's a settlement and no further information will be forthcoming. 
But it's settled. It's settled. But here's a great here's a great uh, part of that statement. The FIA and Scuderia Ferrari have agreed to a number of technical commitments that will improve the monitoring of all (laughs) Formula One power units in the forthcoming championship seasons, as well as assist the FIA in other regulatory duties in Formula One and in its research activities on carbon emissions and sustainable fuels. Uh, So the the, the Ferrari reckon everyone else is also messing with fuel consumption? They're just like, hey, if you're gonna slap us in the wrist, make sure no one else does it. No, see, to me, it sounds like they got caught. To me, it's to me right. that sounds like they did get caught. And maybe, maybe part of their defense is this is standard practice at other teams. Everyone's yeah, stealing signs, man. Everyone's at it. Yeah, but it kind of feels to me like they may have found a way to work around oh, how right. the FIA detected breaches. Okay, yeah. And as part of hushing this up, Ferrari is going to help the FIA <laughs> avoid those kind of miscues in the future. This is such they're like a, a hacker who has been like caught by the FBI, but now they're going to use their skills to catch other hackers. Yeah, yeah. The entire thing, the entire thing feels a uh, sketch, uh, hmm. as as the kids say. <laughs> yeah. I guess more on that um, as we continue into the the season, or or not. Maybe that's the last we'll hear of it. Uh, That's all our news, I think, gentlemen. Rich Energy is sponsoring a British superbike team, but uh, maybe we'll we'll get into that in in Rich Energy Watch uh, as we proceed throughout the season. Got a couple of emails here. If we can jump into those, shiftf1podcast.gmail.com. If you have any emails, f1.cool slash emails. If you have any thoughts about who you think is sandbagging, who you think is going to be a surprise uh, uh, a mid-team, mid-table winner, uh, let us know. ShiftF1podcast at gmail.com. I'll take the first one. Uh, this one kind of in relation to our the, the, the lion's share of what we were kind of doing here um, over the past month, which was talking about Ford versus Ferrari and the 24-hour war, uh, which were two of our uh, patron-exclusive podcasts, patreon.com slash ShiftF1. If you want to support the show and listen to our whole archive of uh, podcasts you can check out now. Um, this one coming in from Michael uh, about a, a good book that sort of complements uh, the movie or movies. Uh, hey, guys, big fan of the show. Uh, I am another new fan from Drive to Survive last year who went from more or less no knowledge to watching every practice session in two weeks. Podcast has been a great help in keeping me involved and up to speed Nice on everything, and I really enjoyed it being a patron too so thank you i wanted to write into you guys to suggest you the book go to oh, sorry go like hell <laughs> but i'm not going go to hell go like hell by aj bame uh, this uh, book covers the events in the movie along with much of the history and backstory leading up to them this being the le mans um 1966 and and sort of around there um, the book has an equal focus on both the ford and ferrari aspects and honestly the ferrari parts are generally more interesting they focus on enzo's personal life as well as the deaths of his son dino and the long process of legitimizing um his son with his mistress piero Jeannie mac um, they also go into detail on many of the ferrari drivers and the criticisms of enzo at the time in his management style and many people's belief that the high-pressure environment led to a surplus of racing deaths on the Ferrari team throughout the 50s and 60s. Some of this was actually covered in the documentary as well, so I'd be interested to see how deep it goes. Um, I found uh, this when I was doing one of the 99-cent Kindle Unlimited trials and figured it would be worth a read uh, with the movie coming out and would definitely recommend it to get more knowledge regarding the Le Mans battle, but also the history of Ferrari's race team 
and road car divisions as well as Ford's racing program and the domestic issues that affected it, such as the release of Ralph Nader's book, Unsafe at Any Speed, which nearly derailed the racing program for PR reasons, which wasn't included in the film. Thanks again for the pod. Looking forward to another season. Keep up the great work. So if anyone's interested, that is Go Like Hell by <laughs> AJ Baim. That's AJ and then B-A-I-M-E. Um, we're checking out if you want uh, some further reading on Ford and Ferrari. Uh, Rob, you want to take this one? Uh, sure. I'm just going to point out, they, they actually oh. interview A.J. Baim uh, in um, uh, The 24-Hour War. <laughs> and nice. the original title for Ford versus Ferrari was Go Like Hell. You're kidding. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, I wonder how much it was used then for the script or something. Must have been a resource, surely, at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, Rob, go ahead. Yeah, no problem. Uh, this comes from Andrew in Calgary. Uh, there's some good news for us Canadian listeners. F1 TV is now available in Canada. I'm watching testing oh right now. Boy. Particularly exciting to me is access to the race archive, which currently goes back to the 1981 season. Are there any particularly good or notorious races that would be worth watching? Any particularly good seasons? I'm sure these Senna Prost years are great to watch. Thanks for all the work you put into the podcast. I've been listening since it was an alternative one. It's been great to see it continue <laughs> to develop and grow. <laughs> Rob is an amazing well, addition. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Andrew. I agree. It's it's funny we're still talking about Rob as an addition. Is this your third season? <laughs> uh, third by a half, yeah. Yeah, I probably read that. Um, yeah, it's cool. I'm glad to see that. I mean, the one that comes to mind right away since this person is in Canada is Canada 2011, of course. Oh yeah. Uh, the uh, the ridiculous double red flagger. Um, God, I think there's there's so many races from last year I'd watch again. Like Germany and Brazil. Yeah, we actually um, talked about this. I think when we were uh, in the off season break and looking for things to watch. Um, yeah, we we did. I think you're right. Was it the last public one we did? I think. Uh, Back uh in December. no, actually, it was. Uh, I think end of end of the season when we talked okay. about this. Um, okay. So we had we put together. This is actually on uh, f1.cool slash blog slash off season 2019. Um, we can actually link this uh, in the show notes as well. But we said from 2019, the best races were Bahrain, Australia, Great Britain, Germany, Hungary, and Brazil. Mm. Uh, and then I think we kind of brainstormed older races and came up with Belgium, 98. Oh, yeah. Brazil, 2008. Uh, Canada, yes. 2011. Brazil, 2016. Um, and Azerbaijan, 2017 and 2018. Yeah, Totally. Also, just like try going back into the F1 TV archive. They don't have every race from every season. I think they're slowly adding more and more. But just like pick a random one that's old. Yeah, because it's fun. it's fun to just see how different it is. I think I watched one from the 80s or something and half the field retired. And I watched it like the following <laughs> race and the same exact thing happened. Like F1 is just different back then. Uh, watch the 2007 season. If you want to watch a great season of F1, watch the 2007 season. 2007. Is that Hamilton's first season? Yeah, when he's paired okay, yeah, with yeah, yeah. Fernando Alonso. Yeah. Oh. And there's a good case to be made that like McLaren would have had that in the bag. That Mer- that Mc- McLaren had the pace that year and maybe the best car. But the problem, of course, is that the two drivers just fucking hated each other. Um, and it got way out of hand uh, in terms of their rivalry. And it escalates to an off 
the track drama as well, which is that uh, in his parting shot from leaving the team in a huff, Fernando Alonso basically maybe kind of sort of dimes the team out to the FIA uh, about some technical infractions and gets them excluded from the Constructors' Championship and a 100 million uh, euro fine levied against the team. Uh, so 2007, just great racing drama on the track, and then just if you look at the politics around it at the time, it's just great stuff. Uh, looks final like, email, uh, Dan. It oh, looks sorry, like only five, five races from the oh, 2007, such a shame. 2007 season are, are at uh, F1 TV archive. Bummer. Is the Brazil one at least? Yes, I think generally what they do is they pick the best ones and then they give you like, you know, a 10 minute recap of the other ones. Mm. Oh, you're right. Yeah, don't they? That's how they do it. They sort of have these little, they're like, oh, I think they pulled them from like ITV or something or Channel 4. It was like a little, like a news wrap up show or something. Yeah. It's like in, in situ. Uh, and then final email, Drew, you want to take this one? Give you sure. Joey says, has a league been created for 2020 F1 fantasy? In fact, Joey, yes, there has. It is called Shift F1 Official over at fantasy.formula1.com. And if you want to enter, you can follow the link in the show notes because I could give you the URL and the code, but that would be useless for anyone who's not sitting with a notepad and paper because there's an invite code that is secret only for Shift F1 listeners. Uh, but yeah, we, um, <clears throat> I can't remember if I did this last year, but I've opened it up. You can now have three teams Ooh. so you can kind of, you know, uh, do different strategies, um, Mix and uh, match. for three different teams. Uh, yeah. D- divide and conquer. So there's already some really good, um, team names in there. So, uh. Check that out. Uh, Ollie B actually <laughs> messaged us on Twitter um, <laughs> about some of his favorite teams. Uh, Roman Groshans continued employment. <laughs> uh, GoFundMe.com slash Renault Team Jet. Uh, Gander Mountain Trucks. And it's your boy, Drew Scanlon. That's beautiful. Which I'm thinking I might I go with say. Antonio Gio Winazzi. <laughs> I saw the signs and it opened up my eyes. This is this is all great. S A I N Z. I yeah. Assume. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Uh, that's emails. Shift F one podcast at gmail dot com or f one dot cool slash emails. Uh, that's pretty much a Patreon. Or that's a pretty much a Patreon. That's pretty much a podcast for this week. Uh, make sure to follow us at Shift F one podcast. Um, the uh, Patreon, of course, is patreon.com slash shift F1. If you want to check that out, we had the um, we have two docs, like I said, the 24-hour uh, war podcast, sorry, um, and the Ford versus Ferrari one. Uh, we're having a sort of a, a, a knocking of heads later on this week um, about uh, adding some cool new stuff to the F1, um, uh, shift F1 Patreon uh, this season. We're also, uh, we've been creeping up in patrons. We're up to over 800, I think, now. And if we hit 1,000, we did promise we'd do some, we'd film some on-track action with all three of us. So We're uh, dangerously close, I would say. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I think, so expect that we're going to do like a sort of an announcement with some cool new stuff coming to the Patreon. Um, 
Uh, I have a bunch of games over there. I'll, I'll, we're going to continue doing the F1 game history or break it out of it. But I think we're going to we're going to add some some fun new stuff uh, otherwise too. Um, but yeah, if you uh, we're we're pretty close to getting up there. So who knows? Maybe before Melbourne, we'll we'll have gotten it and have to go figure out where we can go racing. But uh, yeah, I'm excited to do more fun stuff on the Patreon this year. It was a, it was an absolute blast last year. I think it really sort of uh, lit a fire under our arses as well. Um, and uh, made 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 even the the core show I think more fun just because we were spending more time on it and having fun. Um, anything I've missed, Drew? I don't usually host the show. Is there anything I've I've missed the stage or? No, I don't think so. I think uh, yeah, like you know. like you said, you could follow us at uh, on Twitter at Shift F One Podcast. I'm at Drew Scanlon. Danny O'Dwyer is at Danny O'Dwyer. Rob Zachney is at Rob Zachney. Uh, yeah, anything else from you, Rob? Uh, nope. Just really eager to get these races started before they can get canceled. Yeah, good point. <laughs> yeah. Is our next podcast then pre-Australia? It will be, yes. Cool. In a fortnight's time, I want to say. Uh, I think we're recording next week. Is it next week? Oh, yeah. boy. It's all getting it's to it. Up. Good stuff. Well, we look forward to listening to you then. Drew, can you say something so I don't have to lead into my own yum? It always makes me feel subconscious. <laughs> Absolutely. If you'd like to support the show again, you can do so at patreon.com slash shift F1. Have a good race weekend, everyone. We will see you all next week. Yeah.